Hey everyone, it's another episode of Find Your Film. This time out for this episode, we're doing a director's spotlight. What we do is me, Greg Zavasti, Eric Holmes, and Bruce Porky, we each take turns on picking directors we either A, admire, or B, we just want to learn more about. And for this week, the turn, the wheel turns, and it ends on Bruce Porky. He's he's titled now Bruce, Bruce Perk B. P-U-R-K-B-Y. There must be some reason why he's calling himself Bruce Perkby. That's very interesting. Hello, Bruce. Hey, how are you doing? <laughs> so, yeah, good. And and we have LL Cool Eric. We were talking about LL Cool J before we started recording our latest podcast. Big fan of LL Cool J, Eric Holmes, or did you just love Mama Said Knock You Out? <laughs> I Is just that, like the song. Yeah. You know, you know, LL Cool J, he's like one of those guys like, not a huge fan, but I don't hate the guy. And then usually when I see him, like especially pop up in movies or TV, I'm like, I'm glad he's here. I'm glad yeah. LO Cool J showed up. Well, I am I am glad that for this week we're spotlighting a filmmaker that I did I knew a little bit about, but thanks to Bruce Perky choosing him, I know much more now and I I need to know much more later. But Bruce, can you tell our listeners what person we're spotlighting this week? Yes, we are doing a director, Hal Ashby, and uh, kind of was inspired first by my love for Harold and Maude, which he directed. And then I kind of had gone back and looked at what movies he had made. I'd seen a lot of those movies, but I'd seen a lot of them probably back in the 80s. So I had fond memories, but not very clear memories. And I thought, this guy's got a lot of interesting stuff, I think. So it would be kind of fun to rediscover or discover for the first time some of his other works other than just Harold and Maude. And also, I've always heard he's kind of like a super kind of a hippie director. So that kind of intrigued me as well. So Right. And I guess just right off the top as a teaser, what are some of the biggest, the, the most interesting things you learned, I guess, within that past two weeks of, I guess, the films that we're, we're covering the last detail and being there? Along that universe, what, what are the, some of the most interesting things you learned about Ashby last couple? Other than kind of just kind of the nature of his filmmaking, which we'll talk about, I think, as we get into the movies, I was really intrigued to see how he kind of did and didn't work in the studio system. And I think he's a real kind of a canary in the coal mine for the, the life and death of the auteur, you know, kind of uh, the 70s auteur. So I think that's something I really didn't know about him. Plus, I wasn't really as familiar with kind of how just the way he kind of was in at the ground floor of some classic filmmaking as an editor that you kind of brought that to my attention before I watched the documentary and then kind of seeing how that translated into his films was really interesting to me as well. So. Yeah. And Eric Holmes, Hal Ashby, were you always aware of who Hal Ashby was in your early days during your early days or now as a more mature cinephile, has he come Um, fully to light to you? I, I've known his name, uh, heard of some of his movies, but I have until until just now. Uh, I think Harold and Maude's probably the only one I've seen. Uh, I'd have to go through IMDb, but uh, the the two we're about we're going to talk about today are definitely new to me. Yeah, well, very cool. Um, they were, the two that we're talking about with being cool. there and last the last detail were absolutely new to me. So I'm glad we both saw these movies. A couple of interesting things about Hal Ashby. Bruce Perky alluded to. Hal Ashby as an editor before he became a, a big time filmmaker. Okay. A couple things along the way, multiple Oscar nominated filmmaker writer, but he won his Academy award, not for directing. Okay. 
But for film editing in 1967, he won Best Film Editing for his work on the Norman Jewison film In the Heat of the Night. In the Heat of the Night. I, I've not seen that movie in years, maybe since I was in high school. But I, I remember loving that movie. But it's interesting that Hal Ashby is such a revered filmmaker, but mostly he, he received that Oscar for editing. And Bruce, did you did you see some of that editing skill from the two movies we're covering right now, spotlighting this with being there in the last detail, this is sort of at the apex of his creative, I guess, you know, he's at, at his creative peak around this time. Uh, definitely. Although I would say that when we talk about the last detail, it's, I think it's a little more free form. Um, you definitely see the editing skill, like very clearly in Harold and Maude, but also in being there, I think being there is much more of a, a script story driven movie. And I think the editing has a bigger part of that as well. And the way he uses, he edits visually, but as well as how he edits with sound and music. I think the way he kind of interlocks those two things, he does some really interesting visual and auditory cues and and kind of almost like jokes or sly sly jokes that are kind of built into that. So uh, yeah, definitely I saw it a lot in being there, more than I thought I saw in Last Detail. Okay, speaking of The Last Detail, that is the first movie we're covering for this episode. The Last Detail, obviously directed by Hal Ashby. Released in 1973, one of the writers is Robert Town, the screenwriter behind Chinatown. He adapted it from a novel from Daryl Ponsican. And the IMDb summary is, quote unquote, two Navy men are ordered to bring a young young offender to prison, but decide to show him one last good time along the way. That young, young offender is played by a young, a very young Randy Quaid. And the two... Navy guys are is played. One of them is Badusky, right? But yep. who does Badusky? Badass, badass Badusky. <laughs> Bad, badass Badusky, played by Jack Nicholson, and his buddy Mulhall, played by Otis Young. And again, the young offender is Meadows, played by Randy Quaid. Yeah. So he, what's interesting about this movie is for us personally, Harold and Maude is Bruce Perky's number one film of all time. That was released in 1971. Mm-hmm. This is. Hal Ashby's movie right after that. So what did you overall, you, I'm sure this is a rewatch for you, Bruce, maybe the last or the first time yes. I saw it. So this is, okay. It's a so, rewatch. Okay, cool. So did this movie deepen for you now that you've seen it? Maybe it's been maybe 10, 15 years since you've last seen it or your overall impressions of this movie? Uh, yes, I would say it did deepen for me. I, It's a kind of movie that doesn't get made much anymore, which I, I really love. Although some indie maker filmmakers can kind of make things like this. But this kind of real character driven, very plot light, like the plot's very simple. They're going to get him from point A to point B and how these characters interact and kind of go on, I guess you'd say an extended, almost like an extended party in some degree. <laughs> and But really getting to know all these three characters really, really well through how they interact. And I, I kind of love this 70s kind of filmmaking, which you don't see a lot now. Very... Um, grounded super realistic like it's not it's not um it's almost all in location it's all it just seems really real you know well eric you have really how about you guys yeah you have fresh eyes with this you've never seen the last detail i'm sure over the years you probably wanted to have seen this movie what was your overall impression what stood out for you for for the last detail it's a critically acclaimed and beloved film does it deserve all that hype I would say so. And the odd thing about the uh, Hal Ashby, the uh, uh, with Harold Ahmad, last detail and being there, 
they have really kind of not great titles, but they completely make sense. Like once you watch, like they're not titles that grab you and pull you in, which is unfortunate because the movies are really good. And <laughs> I almost wish they would call it something, anything else. But then you watch the movie and it's like, well, that's the only thing you could call it. So it totally makes sense. Last detail was pretty great. I liked how the, I guess the irony that they're, bringing this guy to uh prison or where, wherever they're bringing him to yeah, uh, yeah. he's getting in trouble they're like jack nicholson's character especially is i can't imagine randy quaid did anything worse than the horrible stuff that jack jack nicholson makes him do on the way to the thing and yeah it's it's definitely got a, a butt ton of irony to it and it's kind of fun and kind of i don't know what that i don't even know what i'm trying to say here it, it, it's a good movie and it's it's very engaging this, of the two we saw this one was probably my favorite but i think being there is probably the one i'm going to watch over and over again oh that's interesting we're going to get to that in a second i you know so i we, we were we just saw all three of us just saw this george clooney film the midnight sky and i ended up liking it and recommending it eric holmes liked it as well me and eric both had reservations and we pointed out we, we critiqued that film okay Bruce does not recommend mm-hmm. the Midnight Sky. One of the things I saw the Midnight Sky after the last detail. Okay, as good as the score was for the Midnight Sky, I was so amazed. I one of my big critiques was I wish there was less score because I was just coming off of the last detail, and it's so interesting with the last detail. There is there are stretches in this movie where there is hardly any music. It's just he lets the scene play, and it's interesting because Ashby just came off from the Cat Stevens infused Harold and Maude where the music overpowers, seemingly overpowers the story. No, that no, it doesn't. They, the, the story and the music, everything is a great dance. It's, a, it's such a perfect movie. But he doesn't use that same trick with, you know, that same flavor with the last detail. Bruce, were you surprised at sort of him dialing it down and just letting the moments play and not hitting us over the head with, you know, what, what most cinema uh, directors would do with all this music and everything. Yeah, I think I, I was a little surprised by that. I think, like I said, again, that this is like, so it's just really um, sitting with the characters. Like you have these moments and you just watch them interact and the music doesn't need to be there. I mean, there's a, a few awesome scenes that I think kind of point that out where there's a kind of brash scenes, like when they go to that bar and he's trying to get a beer for him. And that's, that's a very like confrontational scene, a very loud scene where, you know, badass Badusky is like being his badass est self. Yeah. And then you have another scene where they're just all out in the cold in a freezing day, cooking hot dogs in a park when it's literally snowy as hell. And like no one in the right mind would be having a hot dog barbecuing picnic in a park. Both of them though are just pretty much, pretty much ambient noise and the, the characters. So it's letting you really sit with them and really watch them. And I think that's the difference. Whereas with Harold Mod, you might be having more of a montage, or there might sure. be some kind of a, a visual, a visual moment that you're kind of keying off of. Whereas here, it's just sitting with the characters and them interacting, which I think is the key of this movie. I think what's awesome is badass Badusky. I'm sure. Have you guys had a friend? I I've had a friend exactly like Badusky. I'm sure. It's a really, I'm sure Eric, maybe Eric Holmes is Badusky. Are you the Badusky out of your whole group, I, or or have you had I, friends like Badusky? I may have been that friend, <laughs> but yeah, I, 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 I've definitely, I've definitely known people like him. Um, that, well, yeah, they, they, uh, they, uh, the prostitute scene was a little bit, uh, beyond what I would do because 
the oh, uh, sure. prostitutes were clearly not <laughs> they clearly did not want to be there that whole scene was uncomfortable to watch and I, but i think it's uncomfortable in a good way because it kind of usually you go to the 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 prostitute scene and the prostitute scenes like willing or whatever this one it's it's clear that uh you know it it, it seems that it's saying something about that but uh one thing i wanted to bring up because you brought up the uh you brought up the editing and there's a scene kind of early on where they're using the dissolve as he's talking. Sure. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. And it was such a weird choice, but it kind of worked. And I don't know why. I It, it was definitely, uh, definitely felt experimental as far as the editing goes. And, yeah, I think uh, there, there are its share of dissolves. And I think our buddy Anderson Cowan, he really talks about how he hates us, like that director, Jim Jarmusch. He always does those fade fade to blacks or fade outs it's i think it's one or push-ins i think the dissolve is a, i think a big part of the last detail i have a feeling that it worked for you definitely worked for me bruce did the dissolve stuff work for you as well or do you think he went to i it don't even remember them even really sticking out to me i i didn't oh, okay when i see that kind of stuff especially in, a, in an older movie i kind of just take that into account also with the age of the movie, there's going to be certain things that are just different stylistically. So that didn't really like, it didn't point itself out to me. So well, it wasn't so much the dissolve it. Like you see a dissolve at the end of a scene and that, or at the beginning of a scene, that makes sense. Uh, the part mm-hmm. I'm talking about is when Jack it's right near the beginning and Jack Nicholson is talking to uh, the two guys and it just keeps dissolving in the middle of the conversation, which you never like, you never see mm-hmm. that ever. And and that it was it just stood out to me as like wow this is a this is a different way of doing it but I don't quite hate it actually kind of like when I saw uh, Terrence Malick's Tree of Life and he had these weird mm. these weird cuts that didn't quite make sense but they kind of worked and then granted he kind of ran that trick into the ground in subsequent films but yeah it was just a, it was just a little little editing trick that he did that I haven't seen before or since. And That's I just, I kind of liked it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's especially that hot, that hot dog sequence. I'm not going to say what part of the narrative it happens, that hot dog in the snow sequence with all three yeah. of those men, two of those men, they have to bring in the young kid by, by at this, this is sort of a bonding moment for them. And it's, you see, right. You see the way the camera moves. It, it actually, Hal Ashby in that scene, he opens up that whole sequence where it could have been just a completely closed off two shot hot dog in the park thing. But, you actually get to see the whole landscape of where they're cooking the hot dog. It's probably his most showy camera angle situation. He just, I'm, well, I guess I'm, I'm trying to even, I, I don't want to say where, where it happens, but it's, it's a beautiful moment. But the thing is what I loved about the last detail is he keeps a lot of the, the shots, not really open. Like you said, the, the Terrence Malick tree of life stuff. A lot of stuff is, is pretty much locked in on the characters for most of the movie. Mm-hmm. And then when the park sequence happens, it's, it's kind of beautiful and kind of nonsensical in the same way. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I thought that was, was great. And, you know, I thought the last detail was kind of a little bit more in a very sneaky fashion, pretty, a pretty just poetic and deep film, because in a way, yeah. when you look at what Hal Ashby is trying to do with his work, he's trying to a, the most important part is he wants to tell a good story. B he wants to entertain the audience. But C, he really wants to, he's very ambitious. And this movie is not just about two guys who are, you talked about, Eric, you talked about the prostitute. By the way, the prostitute is played by Carol Kane from Taxi. Mm-hmm. Carol Kane is very, in her small role, she's pretty telegenic and wonderful in that moment and heartbreaking in that moment. IMDB, she doesn't have a name, 
she is just called titled young whore i don't know who did <laughs> no. i don't know who wrote the monikers for that was the last a choice <laughs> that's could we could we change the YW and and just say just say prostitute or young prostitute that just stands out but she she stands out in this movie as well but what's interesting is it's not just a standard coming of age story right about these right. two navy men and they're trying to bring the guy they want him to see a prostitute or or take him to a bar all these really random things you think it's just going to be about that but it's also about injustice right what Randy yes. Quaid Randy Quaid he's going to go to prison. I'm not, we're not going to say what he's going to go to prison for, but it's not fair. And what's interesting is you have these guys, Badusky and Mulhall. Mulhall just wants to go home to the family. He just wants to get this detail over with. This is their, their last detail before maybe they go on, on a break. And Badusky is saying, hey, maybe we should just take our time. We have a per diem. Let's just have a good. You think Badusky, he just wants to have a good time and just milk the system, right? He starts off as a guy. You think, oh, he's right. just a fun guy. And he just wants to, sh- to show this guy a good time. No, Badusky's actually, he really feels just incensed at what's going on. And he can't really express it. And the way he does it is he just wants to show, he wants to bring humanity into this younger character. A little bit of humanity and life and light into this this character in his own way, Meadows, even though it's, yeah, it's, it's a very- It's yeah. kind of like he has his, it's almost like he has his chance to give him his last meal, even though he's not going off We'll say this as he's not going off for a death sentence. That's not going to happen. But yeah. it's kind of the equivalent of that. Like, what would you want for your last meal? And he's kind of like, okay, we're going to extend this and make this as, as we say, value added all the time, right? As value added as we can this trip. But what I was going to say also is that that is definitely a running thing with almost everything I think Hal Ashby does is there's always this subtle or not so subtle, depending on the movie, interplay between injustice and the power, the powerful being arbitrary, arbitrary people running things, and then people that are in position that can't really fight against it and how they try to fight against it. And a lot of times it's done, though, in his movies, when they fight against it, it's in a very a small way, like the way they can fight it. And he also ha- always has a very keen eye to like intentionally empathetic. He's really empathetic to his characters. Like, I don't think as, as brash as Badusky is, you're allowed to see like you said, like where he's coming from. He's coming from a place of of kind of frustration and he's part of the system and he's like, he can, he's seeing it from the other side and it's kind of, kind of tearing him up, I think. And what's you know, heartbreaking. He has to kind of fight back. Yeah, you know, and it's, what's heartbreaking is you see Badusky, he's act, it's actually tearing him up more seemingly than the actual kid, right? And the kid, he just wants yeah. to, he just wants to make sure Badusky doesn't go off the rails because it seems like he's taking it harder than than uh, Randy Quaid's character. So, Eric, did you see a little bit of that as well, or or was it more well, of just a? Well, it's, a, it's weird that you bring that up because I did kind of feel that, but I'm also thinking that uh, for him, it's probably more selfish because we to do this thing and get away with it, and that's evidenced by the fact that when Randy Quaid tries to run off. Who's the first one to pull the gun out? <laughs> like before he even runs, the first thing he does is pull his gun out. So I think there's a little more selfishness with the character than than he may let let on early on. Oh, that's an interesting. It's like, read. yeah, I'm I'm doing this thing for you. Air quotes. I really just want to party <laughs> while we can't <laughs> while we're on the boss's dime sort of thing. But I also got the impression that was also because he like, well, if one of us is going to get punished, it's not going to be me. Because he knows that if he let if he lets this guy go, well, then his ass is on. So it's like still that is selfish, but it's more of a 
it's kind of half selfish survival as opposed to being like, I don't think it's just because he wants to have a good time as much as he doesn't want to get his own ass in yeah. trouble too. I, Cause he's I, a still, lifer. I, I still think that there's a, a bit of, uh, you know, this thing fell in his lap and, you know, he's going to take advantage of it. An opportune yeah. opportunity sort of thing. And granted, I do think he does like him, but I think uh, a lot of it has less to do with showing him and, yeah, the altruism of showing him a last good time and more to do with uh, having fun. And even the uh, the the other guy, was it Oscar? What, what was oh, that um, uh, it? Mulhall? Mule? Yeah, Mule. Mule. Yeah, Mule. Yeah. He even, he even mentions, it's like, dude, he's he's going away. Like, you're you're going to make his time harder for him. It's like, ah, you know, stop it. And like, he's not, he's not thinking of Randy Quaid's character in that moment. He's thinking of himself and using Randy Quaid's character as an opportunity to do these fun things that he wouldn't be able to do otherwise, because they would be back where they're at doing boring army stuff, I guess, or Navy stuff. Yeah. You know, you know, last detail, if you love, if you love Jack Nicholson, it's a Jack Nicholson performance, Jack Nicholson being Jack Nicholson in 1973. I haven't pulled out a lot of movie facts. The only one movie fact that I want to add is, Co-star Luana Anders. Luana Anders, she plays a woman that the guys meet in, I believe, some kind of lounge or or bar. And she's a person who's doing a lot of chanting. She's a chanting mm-hmm. character in, in the movie. She chants with Randy Quaid. Luana Anders was a close friend of Jack Nicholson. She passed on in 1996. And when Jack Nicholson accepted his Academy Award for As Good As It Gets, he thanked a whole bunch of people. And actress Luana Anders, Luana Anders was one of the people he thanked in his acceptance speech, and she is featured in the last detail. Bruce, uh, oh, oh, Eric, yes, yes, sir. I, I was going to say uh, you started mentioning that, and I was thinking of uh, when they went to the uh, the hippies' house, and uh, Jack Nicholson was trying to play up the "I'm a war vet, I've seen some things," you know, trying to trying to find opportunity again. That that scene right there. That's Jack Nicholson's character in a nutshell, I think. The uh, he's got, you know, he's saying one thing, but in his mind, he's he's somewhere else. I think. Hmm. I, you know, I my read. It's cool that you have that read on him. My read on Badusky is he's just so frustrated. He doesn't know how to express himself. He is a little bit selfish. Ultimately, I think he, when he sees a little bit of a betrayal with this, with the with the young guy, I think he says, "I like you said, Eric. I'm doing all of this for you. I'm the good guy, and you're doing this." And I think that's why he was really frustrated. We'll know. You know what? One thing that none of us have done is because we're watching so many movies is maybe you listener can do this. You can, after watching the last detail, you can see it. It's quasi sequel, sort of sequel, last flag flying. Wait, what mm-hmm. is it called? Last. Yeah. Last flag flying. And that's directed by Richard Linklater. That is a sequel to the last detail. Did you see that? Do you ever see that? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. It's, it's weird. I've, you know, it's weird that we've never seen that. I it came out in 2017. Star Steve Carell, Lawrence Fishburne, Fishburne, Brian Cranston. Brian Cranston is the plays the Jack Nicholson character, and Steve Carell plays the Randy Quaid character. Fish, yeah. So it's it would be interesting to see <laughs> how that movie works out. They, you know what? They, they're actually they're they're different names or different characters, but it's still from the same author, Daryl Ponsikin, and it's considered a sequel. Last Flag. Flying released in 2017. What's interesting about this is probably with this generation, more pe- more people have seen that. The young those younger kids have probably seen Last Flag Flying since it's Richard Linklater, as opposed to actually seeing the last detail. So 
That, that's why I haven't seen it. I'm too yeah. old. <laughs> yeah, no, all of us are too old. Yeah, yeah maybe that's. I'll, I'll take that excuse. I found the opportunity and Budinsky'd my way up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that's, you know, there's a lot of interesting people in this movie. I really loved. I'm so glad, Bruce, that you picked the last detail. Final, oh, Gilda, like, Gilda Radner is also in this. She's, she's Gilda Radner? The, yeah. Yeah, Gilda Radner. Michael Moriarty is in this. He's he's one of the uh, he has a, he has a small role as I guess a, a marine who, who gets into a little bit of a mini confrontation yeah. with the guys, right? So, and Nancy Allen's in it. Nancy Nancy, Nancy Allen's Allen. in it. And um, yeah, and she's great. And hey, I read one thing. From Nancy Allen from RoboCop. Yeah, she's she's Where, in it. She's she's one who, of the girls who who they meet, and she's after you know oh, after the chanting, she's God, at the party, and and Jack Nicholson's trying to. I believe, if I recall, All trying right. to hit on her. So, Dex, yeah, I remember seeing yeah. Gilda Radner, and I was like, "Oh, it's a girl from uh, SNL. What's her name?" And then you said it, and I'm like, oh, "Okay." But yeah, yeah I, I didn't even catch Nancy Allen in there. Damn, she's good. <laughs> she, she, Gary Oldman, her way right past me. <laughs> yeah, Bruce, final, she did. Bruce, final thoughts on the, the last only detail? other uh, trivia I had for there. Oh, yeah, I had a couple of little trivia things and a final thought. One other trivia thing I heard for, about this movie was. They said that for a long time, this had the most F words in any movie for years and years and years and years. And that was partly because Hal Ashby and, and Robert Town like would not make it until they were approved because they kept to say, you can just cut out some. And so they eventually stuck with their stuck to their guns and they got it made a couple years later than it probably would have got made. And um, I don't know for how long it was, but for quite a while, it was it was number one in that category. Until I'm um, assuming. Yeah, final thoughts Goodfellas, is yeah. I, I really love this a lot. Yeah, probably Goodfellas yeah. or one of those gangster movies for sure. <laughs> yeah, or what or a Vietnam War movie probably, which he made one. Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> but um, I, yeah, I mean, I really love this movie. It's one of those. Go ahead. Yeah, one of the, you were saying it's one of those. You, you were saying it's one of those one of those things. movies that, uh, like I said, from the 70s. Yeah, one of those movies from the 70s that just really like, it just lets you sit with characters and just lets you just experience the moments with them. And I, I just, I miss that a lot of times with with some of the, um, you had Nicholson just doing movie after movie like this. And it's just, it's it's right in his golden era, I think, you know. So it's just, it's just good, a good one to catch if you haven't caught it before. So. Speaking of catch between between this, you know, there's Harold and Maude. And then after this, 1973, there's the last detail. In 1976, Hal Ashby released a film called Bound for Glory. We're not covering it for this episode. None of us have seen it. It's on the early life of Woody Guthrie as a vagabond folk singer. David Carradine plays Woody Guthrie. That's what's interesting about this movie. I, I definitely have to see this. I can't wait to see it. But um Cinematographer Haskell Wexler, Bound for Glory is movie facts. The first Steadicam shot ever was in this was in Bound for Glory. So this is one, just on a on that level. A you get to learn more about Woody Guthrie. You get to see another critically acclaimed Hal Ashby film. And if you want to see the first ever Steadicam shot in history by the late Haskell Wexler, go see Bound for Glory. Now, after that, three years later, 1979, he released Being There. Being There is a, a movie headlined by Peter Sellers, and it's based on a novel by Jerry Kaczynski, best known as the scribe behind the classic film The Painted Bird. And was I, was I wrong in that classic film, Eric Holmes? Uh, no, you were both absolutely correct. <laughs> Bruce, did I, did, I, 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 did I... I think I stuttered there. Classic? Probably not. Not probably probably not so much. He, but he, did, as, write, he did write the book. 
He wrote yes. the book, yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you know, listeners, we've all had our our moments our, with Painted Bird. The Painted Bird is not going to show up on Bruce Perky's top 25 list, which he's going to compile uh, later this month for his Rustomeyer YouTube channel. And we're going to talk about best films as well and find your film. I don't want to make anyone throw up right now on the podcast, but I'm, I'm thinking the Painted Bird, I don't know, might be might be on somewhere in my top 10 because I don't know, maybe I'm a sick human being. But um, this one being there, Hal, directed by Hal Ashby from Jerry Kosinski's novel, screenplay by Jerry Kosinski, quote unquote, IMDb summary, a simple-minded sheltered gardener becomes an unlikely trusted advisor to a powerful businessman and an insider in Washington politics. Peter Sellers plays the lead character, Chance, Chance the Gardener. It's a seminal role. It's an iconic role. Bruce Porky, does it live up to all of that, in your opinion? I do. I think it does. I think this is a movie that's probably very underseen. And I think this is a movie, you know how we talked about in the past, movies that are like a little bit prophetic, like they kind of foresee the future a little bit and don't know they're doing it at the time, maybe. I think that um, Taxi Driver and King of Comedy are kind of like that. I think Idiocracy, this is very comparable to Idiocracy in a weird way, if you think about it. Um, The different characters, but they both kind of find a way to float into power and people misunderstand them and they get kind of carried along. I think this is a really interesting movie. I think it's a very, this is satire in kind of the, purest form like super dry satire that you don't once again don't get see made a lot these days and it's an interesting concept and i think it's pretty well performed and it's got an amazing performance by peter sellers so eric holmes were you, were you as high on being there as bruce porky well this was absolutely a movie and it's a movie that i saw now having said that without any context you might put in your own bag and say oh eric hated the movie Or, oh, yeah, Eric's being a real dick to this movie. I never said any of that. Much like Chauncey Gardner never said, he just says what he says. But people add all this extra baggage onto him. And to Bruce's point about being prophetic, uh, this is exactly what happens on uh, social media. Like Twitter uh, is the best example. Uh, You type in something and the person reading it is not necessarily going to have your inflection or your tone of in which you typed it. You know, Chauncey Gardner just says things and people take meaning out of it that he never meant. He's just talking about what he saw on TV because he's, I mean, he's hes, he's not all there. Um, he's only focused on what he sees on TV and he repeats it. And it's its no, no more baggage to it than that. But people add all this extra meaning, glean all this extra meaning towards it. And <laughs> it's funny because they kind of uh, herald him as this genius. <laughs> And all he's doing is seeing things on TV and repeating them. You know, what's interesting about that is even with the Kaczynski novel and the screenplay, Ashby being a master at his craft, this is considered his last great film being there. That is so restrained. This movie is absolutely you. Oh, sorry. You have Peter Sellers as your lead. You could have, you have Shirley MacLaine playing the wife of a multi-billionaire and she could have gone off the rails as well. And she has some, she has her moments, but they're all, everything is so, Bruce, were you surprised at how everything was just really so funny, but so funny because everything is kept so close to the best. Yeah. It's so, so, like I said, it's so subtle 
And there are a few moments that are slightly broad. You know, there's a montage with thus Brock Zarathustra sort of aping 2000 when that's pretty broad, but also funny. Or, you know, there's the whole, I'm not going to say what it is, but he does something with a, um, a, a TV remote that's pretty broad. But <laughs> they build and build and build on these subtle moments so that when he says certain things later on, that it has all these layers where, a perfect example, he'll say something as simple as, I understand. Like, he says that phrase multiple times through this movie. And every time he says it, you're like, oh, my God. How are they going to misunderstand him this time? <laughs> or what are they going to put on top of him this time? And um, it's, or another one is like, because he loves to watch TV. And it, several times he says, I like to watch. <laughs> and that becomes a whole <laughs> joke too. <laughs> and once again, they just, they just play it super straight, like super watch. dry. They, <laughs> they never mug. You know what I mean? There's a scene with a Russian dignitary. That's freaking amazing. Yeah. The subtlety, especially with Peter Sellers. Like he is the absolute opposite of subtlety in pretty much every other role he's ever done. I mean, I've never seen any other role he's done. That's subtle like this. And you got the, uh, the old black lady watching, watching uh, Chauncey Gardner on TV. It's like, man, I babysit that boy when he was young. He was the <laughs> dumbest motherfucker you ever seen. Just goes to show all you need to do is be a white guy in a suit and you can get to the- <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, that, that's it. A very great scene. It's one. It's a scene that they always use. I love that scene. And she, she was his. I guess she was his maid, and she raised him. I don't know why in the world she didn't raise him to read. But Chance was just a, a very. He's. What, what would you say? You know, I, I was reading the Roger Ebert's review of being there, and obviously, time and place. He described Chance as a uh, Chance the Gardener, Chance Chance your Chance is uh, mentally retarded. You don't say mentally retarded anymore, but he's. He's really not his, all of his knowledge, all of his quote unquote intelligence or, or the way he, he views things is from the television. So his interactions right. with human beings is very television centric. And that's why, like Bruce was saying, people, people glom on their own. They project their own feelings onto chance. Shirley MacLaine as Eve, she believes chances might be this a long lost soulmate because he, he's resisting her wondrous sensual attentions and he's just a gentleman her husband benjamin rand played great performance by melvin douglas he's so wonderful in this and he he just thinks chance is probably this businessman savant who's also Mm -hmm. a gentleman and there's so (laughs) the dignitary is it's it's fine it's it's a spoiler president president bobby played by jack warden who's never been funnier L.A. Law's Richard Dysart, Dysart is Dr. Robert Allenby, and he's fantastic. There's everyone in this movie is fantastic, but it all goes back to Peter Sellers, who gives such a grounded and hilarious performance in this movie. And Eric, can you talk about why you you, you said earlier on over the last detail, you, you thought, wait, you like the last detail more, but you see yourself watching being there much many yeah. more times down the road, meaning... The, the, so what, the, yeah. This one, this one, I think be, between the two of them, this one goes a lot deeper. And as as easy as it was to pick up on the satire and a lot of the humor in it, um, I think that there's a lot that went right over my head that I might catch come, especially towards the beginning, because the beginning of the movie, 
I'm just like, this guy's an idiot. Like, how come no one sees this? And then he goes ahead. He almost gets beat up. And it's like, dude, he clear. He, there's clearly something wrong with him. Don't beat him up. Like he's, he needs help. He doesn't. And then as the movie went on, I'm like, Oh, okay. I get the point now. <laughs> Cause I'm not uh, that bright all the time. <laughs> uh, it took me a while to kind of catch up to the movie, but um, I, I think there's, I think there's probably like with last details, really fun and really great. But I think I got most everything there is to get out of last detail. This one, I think it would benefit to at least benefit me to go back and watch it again, again, and just pick out little, little details and nuances that I more than likely missed the first time. Well, and I would say like, we're talking about being prophetic, like this one to interesting thing about this one compared to the last detail, last detail is like a character study, like we said, but it's not saying necessarily anything too great about the times other than maybe about military and justice and things. But whereas this movie, this is like right on the edge of the eighties. So it's almost like Hal Ashby is making a movie prophesying what the reason for his own demise as a filmmaker. And it's also really prophesying like what the eighties will become, you know, with Reagan, Reaganism and Reaganomics and just the intense or intense, um, kind of vacuous um, just emptiness of the big political and pop culture system in the eighties, you know, and he's just showing that and he's showing how it can be, you can just prop something up and it becomes reality, you know, because everyone agrees it's reality because he's wearing the right clothes and he doesn't say much and he acts polite. He must be smart. He's good. He's in the club, you know? So I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff there as far as that goes so yeah and since chance is such a likable fella he's never going to Mm -hmm. offend you he's a blank canvas Mm -hmm. and not to give too much away in bruce was alluding to politics or in business right what happens when you have a blank canvas you can elevate that blank canvas and put whatever you want on it and sell it as some kind of package to america europe whatever continent you want to sell to and chance it, it's I, you know what's interesting back in '79, going on the cusp of 1980, this maybe could have looked as a comedy, but now it's just not even a cautionary tale. This is just sort of in a weird way, barring the, that last iconic final moment, it's it's almost a documentary with what's going on yeah. the, these days with social media, the presidents we've had, all that stuff. Or you know, it depends on your your POV. Also, you know, are you guys surprised? Did this movie? Did you find either of you? Did you find this movie to be resonant? Because I, I also took at it, looked at it as you know, in, within the body of Hal Ashby's work about hu- his humanistic approach to storytelling, and I found a lot of humanity. You missed all of the the satire and the jokes, and you know, if you strip yeah. it down, it's really about sometimes people. You know, Chance is not really that lonely because with the remote control and a TV set, he's okay. But he sort of understands death. He can process that that's not a good thing when people are dying are going or are going to die. And then the people on the other end, they may like him, not just because he's a black canvas, but because they're, they're really lonely too. So, yeah. Well, I thought the character that uh, Melvin Douglas is it Melvin Douglas. Yes. Yeah. That Melvin Douglas. So on paper, he's not a likable person because of who he is in the world. Right. Yeah. But they don't, present him like that they present him as a full human being and you actually care about him you know and 
and Chance cares about him. So I think we're talking about that's that's the interesting thing that Hal Ashby does is that even though in a lot of ways these um, characters are caricatures of certain types of people, you know, the rich, multi-billionaire businessman, he humanizes him to the point that you actually care about him. And that is a really interesting trick that he can do in this. Same with Shirley MacLaine's character. You could say she's extremely deluded and shallow in a lot of ways because the way she's, <laughs> but you also kind of care about her and you care about the fact that, you know, that they have kind of a weirdly dysfunctionally sweet relationship. That's the way it goes. <laughs> Eric, yeah. did you find that same level of humanity with being there or was it more of a political satire, dry black I, comedy for you? What, what do you I think? didn't really see it as a political satire. Sorry, as, I mean, there's it's, it's definitely that, but I saw it more as a social satire, um, uh, especially at yeah. the uh, the ending. Won't go into details, but there's uh, there's a lot of metaphor in there. You have the uh, people in front of the cameras putting on airs. You have the 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 six guys carrying their baggage, so to speak. Sure. Meanwhile, Chauncey is just mm-hmm. walking walking away, playing in the playing in the lake. And the, yeah. the, like that, that just kind of that mm-hmm. it's real subtle, but it, it kind of encapsulates everything what this is about. And I, I just, I just like the idea that, uh, you know, nobody's listening to anybody that, you know, everyone puts their own stuff into what other people says, whether they meant it or not. And maybe people don't fully understand people all the time. And, you know, de- I'm definitely guilty of that. Yes. And, and so it goes. And so when you say, does it resonate today? I think that's, I think that's not cheap isn't the right word, but people will think, oh, yeah, because Trump's the president. So that's what it means. Like these have been problems for a long time. The the problems didn't just start now. It's not like he made being there and it's like, well, this movie's stupid and doesn't make any sense. But I'm sure in 2016 on, it'll start to make sense. to people. (laughs) (laughs) This is a universal theme. Yeah, it is a universal theme. I think like network, yeah. though, it really, it really uh, mm-hmm. had a really good telling of the way things are going to be. I, you were saying, Bruce, about, you know, do you find it weird that after being there or do you guys feel find it weird after being there? He's at the top of his of the mountain. It's a great movie. We highly recommend being there. I bought it for five ninety nine on Amazon Prime Video, by the way. I believe being there. It's not none of these movies that that Bruce picked. How dare you, Bruce, are not are not streaming for free. You must I rent know. them. You must rent I felt them. bad that I did that. Horrible, Bruce. But it proves our point. Proves our point, though, doesn't it? Yes. Like, I went to go, actually, I thought, I'm going to go buy one of the DVDs. And one of the DVDs is like 35 bucks or something. I'm like, what? I can't even buy it. Really? Okay. Yeah, I think it was, I think it was, uh, was it being there? I think last detail you can find, but being there is like out of print, I think. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, Eric, did you rent both of them? Did you rent? Is that how you did it? You rent both of them. You rent yeah, them both? I rent. I rented them both on uh, YouTube, but <laughs> I, I think uh, Hell Ashby. Like, I, I don't know if they ever have like a Criterion box set or something, or like Hell Ashby is a really interesting filmmaker, and I, 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 I wish that like somehow his marketing or something just grabbed more than it does because. Yes. Every every one of them I come across feels like homework, and every one of them I watch is absolutely not homework. Well, Eric, so <laughs> being there, being there, the last detail in Harold and Maude. Um, my question to both you guys is: Did you see some kind of thematic thread that unites, or a commonplace theme, or something there, or do you think each of them are sort of one 
in its own place as far as like, to, to me they all have that that same punk rock, punk rock kind of aesthetic like uh um just kind of taking what you know and just kind of poking at it a little bit it's like eh, and, and definitely looking at things from odd perspectives and i think a lot of that has to come from the writers of course but uh i mean it's a common thread in his movies so he's uh, whether he wrote it or not, you know, he definitely, uh, he definitely sees that and it comes through and, in, in all his, all his movies I've seen so far. To your point, Eric, he said, I think it was uh, Bruce, maybe it's in that documentary. We saw Hal, which Hal, by the way, is a documentary on Hal Ashby. It's only about 80 to 85 minutes. Very easy to watch. You don't have to be some kind of film scholar to watch it. That's a good thing. So if you're interested in his work or want to be introduced to a little bit more of his stuff, Go check out Hal, directed by Amy Scott, currently streaming as we speak the documentary on Amazon Prime Video. My our only, I think our only mutual Bruce, you could t- test this. There yeah. are spoilers for being there and coming home. So if mm-hmm. you do not want to see the spoilers for coming home or being there, please wa- either watch those movies first before watching Hal. But so Bruce, did you see something that ties the, those these three movies together, or maybe yeah, his body what- of work? What definitely what um, Eric said for sure. I think that all of his movies, or at least these three movies especially, but quite a few of us, I think, will have misunderstood characters or characters that are somehow oddballs on the outside of society, on the fringe of society, not quite understood. And a lot of times they're in some sort of um, some sort of clash with some sort of a power structure, whether it's politics, whether it's military, whether it's parents that control their lives. There seems to be a lot of that going on. And I think that is partly the writers who wrote them, of course. But like you said, I mean, Hal's picking these stories. He is constantly battling. In his case, we saw from Hal, it's constantly battling the studios. It's it's always, it's a kind of that the age old battle, right? Between the artist expressing himself and the business controlling that expression and where those two kind of meet somewhere in the middle. And his movies have those kind of, things bubbling around in them no matter what the actual story is i think there always is that little bit of that going on there you know eric you haven't seen how yet but i think one of the most heartbreaking things of that documentary comes from the director from election and sideways alexander payne yeah and i just saw this today and in the documentary he says i consider myself a huge hal ashby fan but what's what's weird is I don't know much about his stuff, his second, the second act of his, of his career, meaning he, from 1979, when Being There Ended was released, Alexander Payne just completely fell off a cliff and does not know much of any of Hal Ashby's material. And I think that is so heartbreaking, not just from Payne's point of view. That's a point of view that I think most people share. After Being There, he directed Looking to Get Out with John Voight and Burt Ward. That movie bombed. He did another movie called Secondhand Hearts with Robert Blake. That movie bombed. He did The Slugger's Wife, bombed. Eight Million Ways to Die, released in 1986. His last film, bombed. All of these, and he did the Rolling Stones movie documentary, Let's Spend the Night Together in 1982. Obviously, probably out of all those all those movies within that seven-year span, that's the one that probably did, I'm sure did okay business. But it wasn't a huge. It wasn't like a probably give me shelter or something like that, or, or or anything like that. It was that wasn't a that did not put him in the good graces of the studios by releasing that documentary at all. So, but that's probably his most notable 
release for after being there. He just fell off. And Bruce, do you think it's just because of that, that battle? And do you think that's a heartbreaking story? Or should we look at Ashby as like, no, this guy for a 10-year period was just amazing? Yeah, I mean, a, a little of both. I think a little of both. I think it is a little heartbreaking. I mean, the documentary is pretty much tells me the most I know about how it worked for him in the, in the 80s. But it sounds like that's because of the corporatization of the movie system. He wasn't able to find his way. Uh, the problem was he had had kind of semi-mainstream success and really big critical success. If he could have found a way to step himself down and go into the ind- independent movie system, he probably could have survived until the 90s and then had a resurgence again if he was able to just make smaller movies. But it looks like he was kind of he was kind of tied in. And that that's kind of sad because he, well, and he passed away. <laughs> that was the biggest thing. We couldn't yeah, control he died, that. He died of pancreatic but, cancer. I think he was yeah. in his late 50s when he, he just died real way too way too young, way too way yeah. way too early. He had a lot more movies. I mean, eight million ways to die. I mentioned it in 1986. I just saw it today punk rock aesthetic eric holmes you were talking about i think it was quoted in hal or I, i'm trying to figure mm-hmm. out where it was quoted but Hal ashby was saying it's just a waste of time to go middle middle of the road when you're making a movie man you just don't do it why go middle of the road you gotta go for it and i mean <laughs> I, be I, the best quote ever <laughs> right because i'm not involved and he's he talking about middle of the road Bruce, your favorite movie, it's all about driving the car however you want at whatever speed you want and and living your own life. Eight Million Ways to Die. It is a movie that I was saying in our Cinematics Facebook group, it's a mess of a film. But even in this mess, we're talking about middle, this is not a middle of the road movie. I highly recommend whenever you guys have the chance to see it and you listeners as well to check Eight Million Ways to Die. It is, okay, here, quote unquote, a former police detective played by Jeff Bridges, still recovering from alcohol addiction, is seemingly drawn into L.A.'s criminal underworld after stumbling upon a local drug ring. That former police detective is played by Jeff Bridges, Rosanna Arquette, and Alexandra Paul. Alexandra Paul, you might know her from Baywatch. Rosanna Arquette, you know her from a lot of films. They both play prostitutes and when Jeff Bridges signed on to this movie, he asked Ashby, why do you want to do this movie? This is a cop movie based on a book by bestselling writer Lawrence Block. This is, this is a movie that's like an action thriller. Why do you want to do it? And Ashby says, you know, I want to do this movie because I have no idea why I want to do this movie. So I want to actually direct this movie and find my way into directing it. And that's just, not, I mean, that's a really awesome <laughs> philosophy, the ending of coming home is completely by John with John Voight is completely imp- improvised. So yep. he had this improv, improvis, uh, improvisation, nary, I don't know. He had an improv way of going about filming, uh, directing, and he tried to put it in to 8 million ways to die and it doesn't work, but there are moments in this movie. It's shot by Stephen Burham. Stephen Burham is a DP on many of Brian De Palma's movies. There are shots and mm. sequences of this movie that are gorgeous. The third act, Andy Garcia plays a bad guy. So there's an Andy Garcia, Jeff Bridges confrontation in this huge warehouse in San, P- San Pedro, California, that is just worth the price of admission. There is uh, Andy Garcia. There's a, there's sort of like a sort of a prostitution house that's built on a mansion overlooking, I think the ocean or it's overlooking something. And to get to it, you have to use a tram. There's so many weird things in this movie. 
But Ashby realizes that while he's making the movie, he doesn't want to make a movie about a cop investigating a murder. He wants to make a movie about a cop who's undergoing alcohol addiction. That's not the plot of the movie. But so so a lot of the movie deals with him in AA meetings and Jeff Bridges doing these these imp, these improvisational uh, monologues about being an addict. So this movie is so interesting. It doesn't work. Doesn't completely work, but it's such an interesting curio piece. And it goes to your point about, you know what? If you're going to fail, go big or go home, man. And here's the thing. The heartbreaking thing about 8 Million Ways to Die is it ties into, I think, these three movies that we were talking about, his three awesome movies. It's really about, a lot of his work is about how people from sort of either, they're either disenfranchised or they're outsiders and they end up in a weird way bonding and usually it's one person, they're trying to help each other. And this guy, this Jeff Bridges character, he he's, has a broken family because he's an addict. Um, he's an alcoholic. But for some reason, he decides, and he's not a cop anymore. He risks his life to actually help a couple of prostitutes he doesn't know from Adam or Eve. And it's just one of these things. I think Ashby looked at it and said, well, this really fits into my body of work, which is about people finding each other. I mean, even with... Being there, it's about people just kind of connecting, even though, like Eric, they don't understand each other. I think that's really <laughs> poetic with Ashby's work, and I, and I think I I, re- I highly recommend Eight Million Ways to Die. I was also looking that movie, Looking to Get Out, which is John Voight, which mm-hmm. you know John Voight won the Oscar for Coming Home. That movie, Looking to Get Out, it, we're, Bruce, you're talking about DVDs. That movie, I was looking for it. It's not on just it's not on it's not streaming anywhere, but it's available on DVD and it has a director's cut from Hal Ashby that he saved exclusively for the UCLA film and TV archive. And it was released. That print was released on DVD. Nice. Lastly, I'm sorry about this, but 8 million ways to die. The biggest tragedy about this is Ashby being an editor. The reason why this movie fails is not just because of Ashby, but when he was done with his filming, the movie, the producers took it away from him and they ended up as Jeff Bridges said, Going against, yeah, they ended up going cutting against. He, Jeff Bridges specifically said the, they hired, they got a new editor, they cut it, and they cut a quote unquote against the grain. They cut against the grain, and that is that's bi- a terrible. That's and terrible. You, you know what, Eric? If you watch, yeah, Eric, you watch. I'm sure if I'm sure, Eric, you're gonna if you watch Eric, Eight Million Ways to Die, you're gonna see some really interesting things about it and where it could have been cut, but. It's something where you don't blame, you don't completely blame Hal Ashby for this because there's so many amazing things about this movie. There's so. a there's a there's a couple things about that that really boil my blood. What you just said, yeah. uh, like not not what you said, but the the describing what what happened to him. One, he is an Academy Award winning editor. Yes. So right away, you fucked up. You should just let him do it. Yeah. <laughs> Two, it's it, it, with someone like that. Look, if you're gonna if you're gonna take away if you're gonna take away Iron Man and re-edit it, go right ahead. No one cares. If you're gonna hire someone to do some uh, auteur movie and someone that's got definitely a point of view on things, and they're kind of they're you know they have the specific thing that they're going for while making the movie, you also don't re-edit it because you don't know what the fuck they were thinking when they were doing the shit. Now it's very possible that neither did Hal Ashby. Because sure. as you mentioned, he was just kind of trying to find the movie. 
part of finding the movie is in the editing. In fact, that's where most movies are found. That's why they call it the final rerun. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the, yeah, the, the fact that, Hey, here's a, here's someone that's uh here's someone that's, you know, has definitely a point of view and uh, is a pretty good filmmaker and won an Oscar for the thing that we're not going to allow him to do. <laughs> Everything about that just sounds like the worst fucking idea you could possibly come up with. But he fought the studios so strong. So, yeah. You, you know, because if you watch how, you'll see why they did it. Because they, you could tell towards the end, they hated him. And he, there's that whole thing about how <laughs> he wrote everything down. He wouldn't, he wouldn't just tell him, essentially, fuck you over the phone. He would write it in a very eloquent, <laughs> eloquent memos. So, yeah. he Error he, studio executive, please do much. fuck right off. <laughs> Pretty much. So he he was punk rock against people who do not appreciate punk rock, especially in the eighties. They don't appreciate punk rock, and they were gonna, you know, take it from him. So I, I could see that, and of course, I need to see how to, to know all the all the context. But I, in my mind, if this was his first movie, I'd be like, yeah, they didn't know what they were getting into, and they don't know him from you know whoever. So yeah, take the movie away from him. This this was not his first movie. He's made plenty before that. So you would think that they would have at least done their homework and been like, uh, we know what this guy is. We don't want to get involved in that. Or they're going to be like, yeah, we know this. We've heard this guy's hard to work with, but you know what? He's a fucking genius. We're just going to throw money at him, put our hands up in the air, walk away and see what he comes up with. You know those how much are, of, those, those are your two options, I think. You know how much of a genius he was? I was looking on YouTube today and it was an Academy Award, like an Oscar speech. He was at Academy of Arts and Sciences, Jeff Bridges and Bo Bridges. They were talking about Al Ashby, Hal Ashby. Bo Bridges it was the lead actor of The Landlord, Hal Ashby's first film. And Jeff Bridges was the actor in Eight Million Ways to Die. So the Bridges brothers, they actually bookended Hal Ashby's career. And and Bridges, Jeff Bridges, what he said, which was really interesting, he said, Hal Ashby, what he was planning to do, he actually talked to him and Andy Garcia. And he said, man, after this movie's done, I'm just going to take this movie and I'm going to go to my house. He lived in Malibu. I'm just going to edit in the Bay. And he wanted Andy Garcia and Jeff Bridges to edit the film with him. But he wanted Jeff Bridges to edit his part. And he wanted Andy Garcia to edit his part. And he was just telling them, he goes, yeah, man, you know, I, I just think with you guys editing your own performances and me editing as well, I, it'd be an, an interesting movie. And that's, to me, that's just crazy, but I'm obviously not as talented as Al Ashby, but sometimes Bruce, you need to have those kind of, right? Some, sometimes yeah. you need to have those kind of out of the box. We miss, I mean, we love the crazy filmmakers. That's what makes beautiful art sometimes it's messy and sometimes it's not doesn't work but it's but it's beautiful a beautiful mess or it's a great failed experiment as opposed to just middle of the road like we're talking about you know so i i love the fact that he's willing to do that kind of stuff that's just you know it's experimental filmmaking when he doesn't have to do that anymore and he's still doing it so that's awesome yeah i mean hal is such a eric you're gonna love hal as a documentary but they're the only the only thing is I just wish Amy Scott love love her love her film. I just wish that that last that last uh, from nineteen after being there to from nineteen eighty to eighty six. I wish it was covered a little bit more. I just 
there there is another yeah. movie to be made about Hal Ashby's last seven to eight years as a director. There has to be that movie made because the thing about Hal Ashby is everyone talks about the last detail. Everyone talks about being there, including us. And then we talk, they talk about some, a lot of people love coming home. I interviewed John Voight about coming home years ago. He was breaking down in tears, thinking about the monologue at that time. I hadn't seen the movie, but anyways, so he had so many iconic films. It's just a shame and a tragedy that movies like secondhand hearts looking to get out eight million ways to die. No one is really talking about the, some of the genius elements of Ashby in these movies too, because that's, that has, there's a lot of, I'm sure there's a lot of interesting parts in those, the latter part of his, of his uh, creative life. So Eric Holmes, final thoughts on Hal Ashby. Well, I really enjoy his movies and I'm happy to hear from you guys that, uh, that Bo and Jeff Bridges were able to bridge Hal Ashby's first and last movie together. Oh, thank good. you very much. I'll see myself out. <laughs> no, Hal, Hal, Hal Ashby's great, and I look forward to digging into more of his movies because they're definitely they're they're not what they seem like on the surface. And for the longest time, they felt like homework to me. And every every one I watch, I'm just like, dude, this is great. Then I watch another one, dude, this is great. Then I watch another one, damn, this is great. So I, I look I look forward to looking uh, watching his quote unquote bad ones to see if they're actually quote unquote bad or maybe misunderstood or like you say Greg maybe just a insane mess but an interesting one interesting uh, one and before we get to you Bruce little little last last little uh, element Hal Ashby married five times throughout his life okay and so when we talk about fake news or facts sometimes you can bend the facts or sometimes you have to put the facts into context. Married five times. His last marriage ended in 1969 or 1970. 1969 or 1970. Very good. Very good, Eric Holmes. Running joke with our low-hanging fruit podcast. Sorry. No, 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 no. Don't be sorry. I love it. I love it. Brings some levity. But Bruce, the last, Bruce and Eric, last, he married five times, but 69 and 70, one of, that was the year of his last marriage. You know why? Because around that time was the first time was the debut of his first film, The Landlord. So after that, from 1970 to 1988, it was all about cinema for him. So I just thought that was very interesting. Bruce, what did you find interesting about Hal Ashby from the last couple of weeks? Yeah, all those things, of course. And just like you said, just to me, what was most interesting about him was just finding out the iconoclastic like undercurrent of how he operated within and around the system and how he made that work. And just that's why Hal is really interesting. If you like his movies, as long as you're not going to get spoiled to just kind of see how, how he kind of fought. I feel like this is really good parallel to like what you hear in the music industry, you know, how like, so for so many years, all these musicians were basically just owned by the music music industry. And then they find a way to own their stuff. And for a little brief period of time Hal owned his stuff and he unapologetically owned it and like Eric said he did it in uh, right in a punk rock attitude which is if you realize what punk rock is this is probably one of the reasons I like him because I came out of a punk rock background is that punk rock came out of the hippies it was the people that were hippies and they got a little angrier and the system started to kind of homogenize everything and they refused to let that happen and he is precisely that in film, you know? So while you've got Spielberg going on and, and kind of still making auteur stuff, but for the masses, you've got underneath that Hal Ashby doing this 
intensely weird and humanistic stuff. And uh, I love it. That's all I can say. Yeah. It's so, you know, I don't know if it's, if, if it's a triumph to Hal Ashby as a filmmaker or if it's a sad statement on cinema that Harold and Maude is just still 1971, one of a kind. You don't see something of that level at all, period. So I don't know. I, I think a little bit of both. It's it's sad and, and also inspiring. So yeah, being there. So we covered the last detail, being there down the road. By the way, findyourscene.com. I will be doing a lot of archival stuff from all of our podcasts. I'm going to be spending the next couple of weeks beefing up our sites. I finally migrated everything into a new server. So everything should be good. Remember these podcasts will... I'm not going to say they're going to live on, but these are these podcasts will be templates for our archival material. There's going to be, and we're going to update the stuff. So for example, Hal Ashby, we're going to have a full page on Hal Ashby stuff, including this podcast. And we will update as the days and hopefully the years go on whenever we get Hal Ashby news vis-a-vis people we interview talking about Hal Ashby or just films we've seen. We're going to add that to the big, beautiful bounty of, our Hal Ashby archive, along with the other filmmakers that we've we've spotlighted. I'm thinking Satoshi Khan, that was thanks to Bruce Perky, and uh, Eric Holmes knocked a homer out with Elise Guy Blaché. We've done Joseph H. Lewis, the, um, the my, probably the best filmmaker ever to to uh, grace this earth that we live on, uh, the Midnight Sky, as as George Clooney would say. Brian De Palma, we've also spotlighted, you know, just in reference to him. And uh, so we're going to have a lot of interesting stuff. You know, also, Eric Holmes has some interesting things to say before we get out of here. Who are we going to spotlight in maybe in a week or two? Who's your next director? Who's the director you're spotlighting because it's your turn? Uh, The next director is going to be Oscar Michaud. I believe that's how you pronounce his last name. And I know next to nothing about this guy uh, other than he's one of the first black filmmakers and one of the movies we're going to do is Body and Soul. And another one we're going to do is Within Our Gates, which, and I could be wrong because I know very little about Oscar Michaud, which is why I'm excited for this because like uh, Elise Guy Blaché, I think this is a good one, a good learning experience for all of us. I'm assuming you guys, these, he'll be pretty new to you guys as well. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it, it will go go back in the the early early 1900s and uh, see what he came up with. I believe within our gates was a response to Birth of a Nation. His response to Birth of a Nation. Oh, interesting. And yeah. from what I can tell, he was actually really successful in his day, which is really exciting to hear. And yeah, I can't wait to, to dig into his movies and dig into some of his history and see what we can and can't find out about him. I know to really study up for my, for the next director spotlight, because for the Alice Guy Blaché episode, I remember listeners check out the Alice Guy Blaché episode. I did not study very well for that. I just, I just checked out the documentary, Be Natural, The Untold, what the untold story of Alice Guy Blaché. I remember I, I saw the documentary, but Bruce Perky and Eric Holmes decided to watch basically all of Alice Guy Blaché's uh, shorts and films. And they had a really <laughs> cool conversation while I was left out of the loop because of my, own stupidity yeah. but anyways yeah right that one I with mean, the dog that one with the dog <laughs> <laughs> remember yeah it, it, okay. there's there's so many beautiful things i i, I love I, what there was that one thing oh the train remember the train yeah the, yeah, yeah. Dog, mm-hmm. the train right yeah that was it that, yeah i forgot the name of the, that short but listeners if you just 
Google, oh, check out a podcast that's and and Google at least Guy Blaché. You get and you're gonna just uh, find a, a lot, lots of gems, lots of gems. Uh, Eric, you, I think you're on the cusp of saying something. I, I was gonna say just uh, Google dog movie at least Guy Blaché, and maybe that'll come up. Uh, but yeah, I, actually, I believe uh, that one we did a uh, we had a live reaction with Greg on that one. Yes, we did. They're, 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 they're so short, he was able to watch it and kind of give us a play by play. So definitely check that out for sure. <laughs> Yeah, also right. the drunk the drunken mattress the drunken mattress i love that oh movie. yeah <laughs> all right so that is it for for this our spotlight bruce perky spotlight on hal ashby i am going to force these guys down the road to watch we, we have a we have a hot we have a very busy film schedule this week down the road i'm going to keep on saying eight million ways to die guys eight million ways to die it's a mess but it's a beautiful mess what can bruce can you tease us what what are we going to see from you this week before like on wednesday's wednesday's thursday show what have you been watching lately? Oh, I've been watching all kinds of good stuff, but um, I will definitely be talking about the animated feature Wolf Walkers. Mm, Wolf like... Walkers. Wolf Walkers. Listeners, you got to tell us what you think. Eric, have you seen it, anything lately last couple of days that, that grabbed your attention? Or I, it's... I have. And then uh, as, as you may remember, I had to bow out early. So I got a bunch that I didn't even get to from last week. So <laughs> uh, yeah, this, this Wednesday is going to be pretty packed, pretty well packed, I would think. Okay, that's it. 8 Million Ways to Die, being there, the last detail. And the, you know what? There's so many other Hal Ashby movies that you need to see. And uh, definitely uh, keep in touch with us. Tell us it, it, what you think of Hal Ashby, if there are movies that we should check out as well. Oh, Bruce, how's and one more thing, you know, out of all three of us, it used to be Eric Holmes who used to be very. Eric Holmes was a very generous. Eric Holmes is a very generous guy, but lately, I think Bruce Perky's overtaking Eric Holmes on the generosity scale because he has this whole what's what's in the box segment, yes. what's in the box segment, and can yes. you tell just very quickly, listeners, Bruce, can you say very quickly? So what's in the box? I just if you send me a suggestion of a movie I either haven't seen at all or. I haven't seen long enough that I don't remember it very well. I will put your suggestion in the box. And once a week, I'll pick one out to, to watch the next week. The one I'm currently going to be talking about this week uh, was, is the movie, um, the lives of others. Okay. The lives of others. That's and cool. if you haven't seen that movie, you should check it out. Okay. I will put Bruce Perky's email in the show notes. And uh, lastly, Eric, you're still working on the game, still putting a lot of hours on the game. I am. I got all the. I got all the pieces now. I got to print out some stuff, and I'll be sending you guys out a little, uh, little uh, package here pretty soon. So very cool. Very cool. I'm excited. Maybe very, by very, very, very close. Very, very <laughs> close. And remember, if you want to l- learn more about Eric's game, and I don't know, maybe you might want to bother him about the uh, his script. He has. A, he wrote a really wonderful script, and he's going to direct that. It's very interesting story and it it'll have like a and he's, he's doing this thing, a really interesting thing with the uh, open world rpg game that he's been working on so that is it we will see you guys later this week hal ashby forever and talk to you guys soon